Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Chopping Block. Every four weeks, the four of us get together and give an industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, there's Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Third, we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And finally, myself, I'm Hasib, head hype man at Dragonfly. All four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. So, um, Robert, we were just commenting how incredibly young you look with your, with your beard shaven off. Uh, I, I, I got the feeling that Bitcoin's back at 20 bucks with how young you look. How, uh, how, how, does it, how does it feel to be unburdened by the beard? You know, I, I shaved clean for the first time in two years. I think it's going to be the catalyst to bring us out of this temporary bear market. So time will tell, but ask me in like three weeks if it worked. Is this, is this part of like being a new father? You're trying to reinvent yourself? Yeah, exactly. You know, you got to start from a clean foundation. So, you know, reboot, you know, start eating a little bit healthier, you know, this week too. So, you know, maybe you'll have a really? younger, fitter me. Baby, yeah. baby only sees baby face. <laughs> what's the uh, it looks like you're about diet? to intern at compound you know, it's like for, for showing up it's your first day i just really love decentralized money markets you know yeah me too you know it's like i can't wait to see if they exist yeah. wow is the uh is anything weird in the new diet anything particularly crypto relevant is it like meat only no seed oils <laughs> no seed oils nothing that comes wrapped in plastic nothing processed yeah, I feel like since COVID, my diet has gotten a lot worse than what it used to be pre-COVID. Uh-huh. So yeah, gotta, mine too. I gained like 30 pounds. Yeah, I got I to gotta work on that. Okay, well, we've got an interesting piece of news this week. So, so our namesake, Laura Shin. So first of all, we, we're, we're all here to congratulate Laura Shin because, one, she just released her book, The Cryptopians. It just came out this morning. Actually, it was just announced that uh, my place, which I'm not at right now, just received the pre-order book. It just arrived this morning. Uh, but I don't actually have it with me. Otherwise, I'd be flashing it uh, on screen. Uh, but in the book, it was announced that there was a huge reveal. And the reveal is that we now actually know, according to Laura Shen, allegedly, uh, we know who was the infamous DAO hacker. Okay, so I, I think th- this at this point, given how many people have entered crypto in the last couple of years, I'm going to guess that for a lot of folks, this is ancient history. So we need to, we need to crack open the history book. So the DAO hack was a hack that took place, I think this was 2016. Yes, 2016. So in 2016, the, one of the very first major projects and ICOs on Ethereum was this thing called the DAO. And the DAO was basically a decentralized, uh, essentially decentralized venture capital group. And the DAO was, uh, at one point, it held something like 5% of all the Ether in existence. It was a huge project on Ethereum, back when Ethereum didn't have a whole lot else going on. And uh, it got hacked. And as a result of trying to ameliorate the side effects of this hack, which would have had the, the DAO hacker controlling a huge amount of the Ether in existence, Ethereum very famously pulled the switch to hard fork 
into two versions of Ethereum. One, which today is called Ethereum Classic, uh, which is a sort of parallel universe in which the hacker got away with it and owns all the Ether that he stole. And then the current version of Ethereum, which we know today is just Ethereum, which is actually a sort of forked and rewritten version of Ethereum that made a temporary exception in the otherwise automatic rules of the blockchain that this hack got undone and the contract got fixed in such a way that it, it is no longer hacked. So for a long time, it was unknown who this hacker was. And we just discovered that it is a, let me see, uh, it's a 36-year-old Austrian programmer who is the co-founder of 10X, which is some weird ICO project that I don't know very much about. Do any of you guys know anything about this person or know anything about 10X or have any connections to this story? So my only connection to this story is that the DAO hack is actually what got me excited about Ethereum and actually got me to notice that Ethereum existed and was, and was working. So the DAO hack is actually what brought me into the ecosystem originally. I was not like an ICO participant. I didn't think it would work, you know, to be honest. But the DAO hack was like the moment in time that got me paying extreme attention and made me want to build things in the space. Um, I did at some point like invest like $12 in the 10X ICO. So I do know the project that way. But I will, you know, caveat and say that anything is allegedly, we actually don't have any conclusive evidence that this person is the DAO hacker. You know, there's always the 1% chance that he's not, so we don't want to have this person skinned alive. But aside from that, I have never heard of this person. And if he is, it's almost something to be proud of at this point, years <laughs> out. Because it's one of the most monumental events in the history of both crypto and blockchains and Ethereum, period, full stop. You know, it's one of the most controversial things to ever occur. You know, a huge amount of people think it was ethical and deserved and positive. And it started to prove out most of the really important questions about, you know, is code is law or is code not law, led to the fork of Ethereum into Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. And I kind of think it's something to be proud of to be at the, you know, that cataclysmic event. Um, but we'll see if at some point it's proven that he's actually the one who did it or if he admits to it. Speaking of proof and speaking of um, allegations, I actually found the, the details of this article to be super interesting. Basically, once the ETH was stolen, um, it was swapped via Shapeshift, um, which is a basically a ring exchange for, do, for doing cross-chain swaps. And basically swapped into to Bitcoin, um, and then it was, it was dormant for a while. And then the, at a later date, they swapped it into Grin, or they, sorry, then they mixed it, and then they swapped it into Grin, um, which is another privacy coin. And basically along this path, it was revealed that Chainalysis, which is a blockchain analysis group, um, was able to unmix the transaction from Wasabi Wallet, which is, which is how he tried to gain some privacy for these, for these Bitcoins, which normally would have otherwise been you know, very obvious with the, with the, uh, who the holder was. And so this is an unknown capability that Chainalysis has. I presume it was pretty somewhat easier this time because the uh, transaction was so large in size. So there's a very small anonymity set. You just can't really hide a such a large Bitcoin transaction. Um, and then basically this uh, swap from Grin, uh, Bitcoin to Grin uh, was sent to this person's Grin node, which was his like, name.io. So not very yeah stealthy there, but pretty interesting uh, you know, details. I, I also remember using... You know, shapeshift in the very early days um, when, when you couldn't do, you know, other, other types of uh, swaps. And just the fact that Chainalysis can also unmix mixed Bitcoin in, in certain scenarios is also pretty interesting. 
So I was slightly skeptical of the story of that. It's as simple as Chainalysis has some magic way to unmix Wasabi transactions. Like maybe it's true, but it seems more plausible that they just had not that big of an anonymity set and they just kind of chased down all the things in the anonymity set. And they're like, oh, this one is connected to this guy who like also has these other things. Or, you know, they're basically able to plausibly rule out some of the other outputs. And as, as such, you know, they, they, they're going to go and say like, oh, we were able to figure out that it's exactly this one. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's my gut feeling here is that this is not like a large scale, because this is the first time we've heard about this, right? And this is not a live attack. This is, this is something that's like purely intellectual curiosity who hacked the DAO at this point, given that obviously they didn't get any ether. They have ETH Classic. And I mean, who's going to cash out the ETH Classic that the DAO hacker stole? So it, it does seem like, I don't know, I don't know, Tarun, if you have a perspective here, but I feel like this may be overrepresented what Chainalysis did here. I will say one thing that I remember um, was that, you know, there's this very, if you were in Ethereum uh, at that time, there's this very early testnet that 90%, I'm sure, of, of people have not heard of called the Morden testnet. Doesn't really exist anymore. And um, if you were paying attention on Twitter, in maybe like five or six months ago, Laura and a few other people were like, hey, does anyone have an archived copy of the Morden testnet? And so nothing rang a alarm bell in my head more that someone is trying to do some type of like deep analysis because the people who were, who were actually asking for the copy were like Hudson from the EF, or at that time, I guess he just left him in flashbots, like Laura... And one of the two Alexes who worked at the EF, I forget which one it was, either the one who went to Balancer in DNS or the other one, Van Descend or, or the other. It was like very like particular people, very close to Ethereum Foundation plus Laura, and that like clustering was very odd to me. And so it, it it did actually seem like there was some much more weird digging going on. The the Morden Tesla thing was like the big, big thing. So I think I suspect that. So the Morden testnet was like what, uh, you know, like like one of the modern ETH testnets, but it was it was deprecated in the hard fork. It was kind of basically killed by the DAO hack. So I suspect there might be some truth to this because it was really hard to find anyone who had like that testnet archived. And the fact they were able to go back to that and they asked on Twitter, like that part, I guess, wasn't said in the article. But like, I mean, you can go find the tweets. Like if you search Morden testnet, I don't think they're deleted. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little more hope in that regards with regards to the grin thing. I, I didn't, I'm a little less, I'm sort of in your boat that maybe there's something else going on. Like it, it just like the volume didn't make sense. Although one hilarious thing to think about is that ETH classic has had so many hard forks at soft forks and itself forget about hard forks. I, I mean, like actually just forks from like miners, not mining it and like big trades getting front run that. It does make you wonder if if uh, if it is really this person whether like they were making like large transactions and like a lot, some of the exchange softworks that we saw in ETC. I don't know if you guys remember like ETC basically got fifty one percent attacked at one point, right? I was wondering if some of those are actually related to this person trying to like do this grin thing because the timing was around the time grin was like sort of coming online. So there's a couple things to corroborate these other other aspects that I don't think were mentioned. Uh, but the Morden testnet plus this this sort of like ETC forking being around weird transactions, like there's 
there's something there. I, I, I would say we, <laughs> perhaps perhaps there's more to it, but like yeah, there's a lot in the story that does check out. So it feels like behaviorally the story of okay, we found all this evidence that it's you. We present you with all the evidence. You're like, no, 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 it's not me. And then you delete all your social media records and kind of run away. I mean, to me, I'm like, okay, that's kind of all the proof that I would need to know that this person is probably the hacker. Because at a certain point, like, uh, you know, you're protesting a little bit too much and then running away a little too fast. I give it 99%. They could be scapegoated. You know, there's a lot of different factors which make it like not definitive in my mind. You know, just because you delete your social media presence doesn't mean. <laughs> Robert, how big are your 10X bags that you're. <laughs> oh, to- I own the whole project now. I, <laughs> yeah. I think 10X I on 10X, 10X, clearly. Yeah, yeah clearly. Maybe like a week. Your 10X is now 1X, Robert. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> 0X. <laughs> I don't think he was actually able to cash out that much, though, which which is the funny part. Like most of it is still sitting there um, in these classics. So I think it was only like a few mil or something like that from the article. So maybe this gets uh, this gets to a slightly related but kind of crazier thing to think about. Like we've been, it's been raining cats and dogs of like attackers being found in a short period of time, and it, it kind of feels like a lot of the reason that this has happened is like whoever did the attack, whether it was this person directly or like this person was just an accessory, they were unable to get out of more than a certain percentage. So like the Bitfinex mm-hmm. hacker, right? The actual hacker, as far as we know, could only get out of $900 million out of the like four, four point five. Well, well, that's what's missing. So I mean, in the best case scenario, the, the person who isn't caught got away with that. That's a pretty low take rate given how much, they were able to get out of, right? So I, I think like the moral of the story is eventually whoever actually does this stuff realizes it's actually really hard to get out in like serious size. And then they start trying to like get accomplices and the accomplices get caught. That's my that's my sort of rough theory as to like how how we kind of have some of the bumbling mistakes we've seen. Is this even illegal though? Was this even a hack? Like like basically they he stole the money and then they just changed it so that the money was not stolen. So it's not like a normal DeFi hack where the money is actually permanently gone. In this scenario, like everything was kind of reverted. So like uh really who who lost here? Well, it's reverted on one chain, right? Every ether holder, right? Every ether holder lost. The blockchain fractured into two. Every user, every developer lost in some way. I think this is kind of a stretch, though. Like, ETH Classic is nothing. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm missing out on some huge chunk of value. Uh, ETH Classic is basically worthless. So it's like, in reality, you know, um, you don't actually lose out on Tom, anything. I'm excited for your, your, your Twitter DMs shortly. After this <laughs> uh, yeah, who, who lost? I mean, this is also, like, the number one event that, like, Bitcoin maxis point to in mm. terms of the, like, flexibility of Ethereum monetary policy. Okay? For sure. It was a narrative That's loss, true. for sure. That's true. I mean, it's a big loss of credibility, I feel like. Yeah, like the community decided that the hack was so bad that they made a new version of the blockchain without the hack, right? And like, yeah, that was an unbelievably contentious decision at the time and probably still is, right? So who lost in some ways? It's it's Ethereum in general lost and all of the users and developers. Now, it's years later, you could say that like maybe it made everyone a lot stronger. And I think in other ways it did, but like everybody lost, right? Sure. I guess it's, the point is there's, there's not like a group of depositors that is short, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's, it's sort of more of a, I agree, a, a branding and sort of uh, narrative loss uh, more than anything else. But as it's been repeated, right? People wanted to do this with the parody multisig as well, and it didn't happen. 
We don't know. We know that people wanted to do it in large mass. I would say the parody was much more contentious than the DAO, in the sense that like parody pulled, was like we're going to exit Ethereum, and then they did, <laughs> right? And like Rug pulled the client. It was a very different. It was even more con- more crazy that they. It's also possible Ethereum would be worth more today if the DAO hack had never happened. So we can't we can't you know measure the counterfactual loss of value, right? It could have been that. It would have taken much longer for Robert alternative would have been, maybe never have made compound if the Dow hack didn't happen. That's, That's what we true. learned on this episode. That's okay. true. I probably, okay. I never would have like looked at smart contracts if it hadn't happened. So I don't know. You would have just gotten rich off 10 X. Never yeah. had to build anything. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have gone to the Ethereum ecosystem at all. Yeah. Like I hated crypto before that. Like, I way long ago, like dabbled in Bitcoin and was like, eh, Bitcoin, you know, whatever. It's not going to take over the world. And then the DAO hack is what got me excited about crypto. Why did it get you excited about crypto? Why? What was exciting about it? The fact that you could build using a computer program, like a, you, you can start to program financial assets on a blockchain. Like, like the fact that like, the DAO was even deployed it was like such a monumental achievement, I think, for society at large that like the DAO as a smart contract getting deployed with the ability to like gather funds and deploy those funds. And like, like it was incredible. Like it, it was so inspiring. Like it made me like immediately look at Ethereum as like something usable, you know? It's definitely one of the more sci-fi things that I read when I was learning about crypto. I was like, holy shit, that's, so cool. Yeah. It's like the dream of you, like, of like crypto itself. And like, you know, some people like need certain like events in the world to like get it and like have a click. And like right now with like the truckers in Canada, like people are getting like why you want like censorship resistant money. Like, even though people like got that like 10 years ago, like people are like learning the lesson. Like the DAO was like to someone who's like a builder, it's like you can build extremely complex financial infrastructure on a blockchain. It was like, wow, light bulb moment, you know? I feel like the other thing about this story is that it's another vindication of this narrative increasingly arising that crypto is actually not good for laundering money. And it's like all these big hacks, they keep getting unwound or they keep getting found or they keep getting frozen. And um, I think we're just going to keep seeing more of it. So the ammunition on the side of no, crypto is actually not great for stealing funds or laundering money seems to be getting stronger uh, every time that we uncover one of these. One, one thing I, I just want to point out about 10x, I, I didn't really know much about them, although clearly there was, I mean, just go look at their chart, 100% insider trading on this. And like, you know, you can just like see the volume like 100x in the li- like, like last two and a half weeks. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's like this, this, is, this is a chart of like, hey, someone's going to take some Can you throw this up on the screen? Yeah, throw it up on the uh, screen. Just, just go to Wait. the 10x one month chart. It's like it's pretty hilarious. Up or down? <laughs> It goes up and then down, but it's like you can you can see the downward down. thing is like this like perfectly linear line. Like it's 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 like hilarious. Maybe it's like the bet that the attention is going to go up and then the price is going to go down when people realize that he's a bad guy. It's 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 it's, it's a beautiful chart. Um, the one month, the thirty day. Oh, thirty day. The, yeah. Oh wow. 30, yeah, 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 thirty yeah, day is just like look at this linear thing coming down. <laughs> it's like and look at the volume. Look at the volume. It's like wow. Uh, it hasn't had that volume in forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. That was actually the other interesting piece of evidence. I think it's less damning. It's kind of more circumstantial, which is like, um, I forget the name of the, the the DAO hacker, but he was basically suggesting to people that they should short Ethereum right before he drained the DAO. 
um, which is like, like a, you know, I don't know why you would do that. It seems pretty um, leaky, but programmers are very rarely good traders. A lesson I learned uh, firsthand in trading. <laughs> uh, yep. One 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 other thing is the 10x co-founder guy. Definitely oh, started a bunch of scammy. Yeah, he started a ton of scammy like DeFi forks in the last year and a half. So I don't, I don't know if that, I don't know what that, what you want to make of that. But like he, he was tweeting, he was tweeting today, <laughs> and like then I was, I, found, I looked at what he made, and I was like, wow, okay, you were, you, you made a lot of these like pangolin wash trade, or sorry, um, uh, pancake swap like uh, wash trading like things. Robert, you've come a long way as an investor. I, I still invest in shitcoins like 10x though. <laughs> All right, <laughs> All right. From, from humble beginnings to more shit. No, 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 no. They're now they're now shit NFTs. That's true. I, yeah, I still get suckered by all the new things and shiny things on the crypto menu. No, that's fair. That's fair. What is crypto for if not losing money to dumb things? Um, speaking of uh, crypto and dumb things, so I think we should start doing like a weekly segment on dumb DAOs. So there's a new DAO that is trying to buy the Denver Broncos, which uh, is a sports team. It's an American football team, uh, estimated sales price of $4 billion that I guess is going to go on auction. And uh, buythebroncos.com is is out there trying. To, it, it doesn't even have, uh, it looks, <laughs> so Dirge Unite, let's own the Broncos together. It doesn't look like they even have any place to actually put money yet. They are recruiting people who can maybe help them figure out how to set something up on Juicebox, I suppose. I don't know. Like right now, so far, I think historically the biggest DAO is the one we, we talked about last time, Assange DAO, which was about 50 million. So this thing is about 1% of what it would need to be in order to buy the Denver Broncos. I don't know. What do you guys think uh, the likelihood that we see bigger and bigger DAOs start going after more sensational things like this? Here's my prediction, and I could be proven completely wrong, and I hope to be proven completely wrong. I think what will happen is over time, Instead of capital being formed to do something cool like this, because like they're never going to hit their goal, right? You're going to see like more permanent pools of capital available, like either from DAOs or like protocols or whatever that are able to like respond to these events. So like we're already at the point where there's like protocols and DAOs with like a billion dollars, right? It sounds crazy, but like it's true. They do. They have like a billion dollars. And like, yeah, the Denver Broncos are like completely out of reach, even for like the biggest protocols and the biggest DAOs, but like, a minor league team is not, right? Or like, you know, like things that don't cost $4 billion are like that, that is available, right? So like, I don't think we're going to see these like quick, let's fundraise as much money as humanly possible to like do this thing. Like that's a really hard coordination problem. I think what we'll see is DAOs and protocol treasuries and like these players like emerge that like have hundreds of millions of dollars available to like like seize opportunities that like eventually like, Oh, we should call, you know, M and a DAO, you know, you want to do like a SPAC for DAOs, a DAO SPAC. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like a DAC. So, so which football player is Chamath? I don't watch football, so I, I don't know anything. <laughs> which, football <laughs> <player is he? laughs> which football player? Which football player? Cause he, like, who's the SPAC promoter, the cheerleader, the one he's who's like, oh, Yo. oh, I see. Okay. The promoter. Yeah. It's gotta be some celebrity. Who's going to like make the SEC angry and that, but there's always going to be one, right? At least one. Yeah. I feel like you probably need Daniel Sesta to go in and be the guy who tries to buy the sports team. Sifu? Sifu. Or Sifu's <laughs> yeah. the other option. Or the 10X guy. Apparently he's quite charismatic, I hear. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying there has to be some like cheerleader. Maybe Tom Brady is the like is like the football spec a Dow spec driver because like he's already done all these crypto commercials. He's like he's just like primed, and you know, you know, I I just like think that 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 will be the catalyst. Although one thing to remember is probably the longest running Dow like structure in the U.S. Uh, that's like largely capitalized is the Green Bay Packers, where like. People in the town like own shares in the team and they get some dividend. They can vote on some things, right? Like they do actually have these kind of like cooperative ownership structures in sports. I just tend to think most of the people who want to do it right now are unequipped to actually do any of it, led in part by a fact that like all the news articles for this thing uh, tended to quote uh, PhD students who are advising the DAO instead of anyone working on the DAO, which I found hilarious. Speaking of um, dumb DAOs, because maybe this should just be a recurring segment. This is my current, like my current favorite uh, DAO or SPAC DAO. This is Fry's DAO. Um, they're buying fast food restaurants, and that's pretty much it. I, I feel like generally, like that the DAO formations that Do we see are. Do I get anything for donating? Well, you get a token. You get Fry's token, <laughs> and in theory, you get some repayment from the cash flow from the from the fast food restaurant. You know, normally they're doing something very epic. You know, they're buying a copy of the Constitution. They're donating to Julian Assange. They're buying the Denver Broncos. But this is just uh, buying some fast food restaurants. So respect, you know, start start small, starts practical. What voting rights does the token have? Like voting on which chain to be a franchise of? Or like, how how does this like, what what's the token purpose here? Other than just like, yeah, people? I think it's just like a governance token. You know, we put a bunch of money in a pot and then we can we can vote on which you know, or maybe they want to open a franchise. You know, they have a lot of they have a lot of options. This isn't even a spec. This is just private equity. Like I feel like crypto is just getting more mundane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's private equity, except people are trading like the 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 mezzanine tranche of the the fund or something, right? It's like, yeah, that one's going to end badly. <laughs> well, clearly the franchises are going to lock them out at some point, right? And just be like, "Fuck you!" Like. It just seems like unlikely that will happen. I think that one's going to have a principal agent problem. And the people organizing the DAO are going to figure out a way to get all the money. And the people who are investing in the fries are not going to get any money. Imagine if your dividends were paid in fry NFTs, though. Then you've given all your money to people who go out and buy real, real world businesses, make the real world money, and you get JPEGs. Like, that's probably bad. I think a lot of NFT projects aren't so different. Especially these ones that are funding movies that, that haven't been made. Like, it, it's not so different. Uh, there will be some weird thing that goes on. The difference is the franchises, I think, or franchisers will just, you know, put a foot down on this. Here's a chopping block experiment. We should profile a bunch of bad DAOs, and then the audience should tell us which of these bad DAOs the four of us should take our real money and put into one of these bad DAOs. So a year later, we can come back and be like, oh man, we lost all of our money in Fry's DAO. But let me tell you about the experience along the way in a way that would make us really like credible. We could do a dating game for DAOs where we bring three bad DAOs and then like one person who's like, I want to join a DAO. And we ask questions on their behalf and then they have to pick and then we, yeah. That sounds like an amazing game show, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would be kind of funny. I, I'm imagining now Dow dating, and I feel like, um, I mean, we, we, we've talked some about protocol M&A. It'd be interesting to see if we end up doing Dow M&A. And, you know, so one of these, 
one of these kind of failed takeover bid DAOs is kind of like, okay, well, we didn't buy the Blockbuster or whatever, but you know, like the NFL DAO or the Broncos DAO like rolls up a bunch of the smaller ones, <laughs> like buys up fries DAO. It's like, look, you guys don't need fries. Like, let's just go buy the Broncos together. All I will say is I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how you would do an M&A protocol. I've noticed that. I've noticed that. Tarun, give us the rundown of M&A protocols. The, the TLDR is like, if you were watching the uh, Faye-Rari merger and disclosure, Robert and I are Faye investors. The Faye-Rari merger was a very contentious thing. And most of the contention was price discovery. Where like someone said a price, someone said, I want one-tenth the price. And then people were like, okay, we're going to like pull all of the the conversation offline and come up with the price and come back. So it was like, it was like a, a contentious thing. I think if you can make a protocol that separates price discovery for two DAOs in such a way that each DAO votes on like putting a portion of their treasury to be the, to, to sort of be the backstop price. And then you have this kind of like continuous auction where people who own both sides of the token can vote, basically lock their tokens. And then at some point, in the future, decided by governance, basically the trade gets executed at the final price. Now, now you have to make this like resistant to whales. You have to have some rage quit things so that people, you know, some of the Fay argument was that there wasn't good enough rage quit. So there's a lot of details to make it work as a protocol. But if you can make the price discovery some type of like thing that you see where, where people can like basically vote on the final price or like stake for the final price, I think you can alleviate some of these problems and make it relatively generic for like certain types of governance contracts. And eventually Denver Bronco Dow will use this to acquire FryDow. And we will have called it here. You will have called it here first, Robert. <laughs> yeah. Your, your point around price discovery, I think is, is well received, but it's maybe think why people who are not auctioning things or selling things that might be interesting Dow targets have not tried to solicit DAOs actively. This is a, pool of capital that is uh, not super price discerning and is actually looking to, actively looking to deploy. You know, you would, you would think active, actually trying to get these people to bid on your thing is, is probably a good use of time and, and money versus like you're just leaving it to the sort of standard, you know, high net worth or PE firms or whatever. I mean, the whales still will have ex- more power in this thing. But they, I think at the end of the day, you want to incentivize the whales to just like show their cards before the thing happens. And like somehow that's more how you want to design this. Cause like right now you have this weird thing where like some of the whales want to just like only discuss things off chain and then the price discovery is extremely slow. Well, this is a kind of a more general topic. I feel like, I mean, you saw the same thing with sushi when there's this interplay between the deal-making that tends to happen, you know, in the context of a DAO, oftentimes there's deal-making that needs to happen behind closed doors for people to feel like the negotiation can kind of happen in a way that is suitable to both parties. Um, but the the nature of a DAO culturally kind of demands that all the negotiating happen out in the open, right? And it, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, democratic countries that kind of feel like, look, we should be beholden to our, you know, uh, electors in the way that we make decisions uh, diplomatically. But it's also necessary for diplomats or legislators to be able to go behind closed doors and kind of hash it out and then come out with a proposal that they present to the broader constituents. How do you guys think about this dynamic in the, in the, in the world of DAOs, because it feels like this is, this keeps happening, right? You have this, this feeling that, look, the founder or, you know, a group of people who are kind of responsible for BD at the protocol level, they want to have the flexibility to be able to, you know, go behind closed doors and negotiate bespoke deals and maybe present them to the DAO and communities by and large 
really resent this. They don't like this phenomenon, but it, it, it seems pretty universal. I think it's effectively always going to happen. There's no, there's no doubt that like, I mean, that's just the nature until we actually have private smart contracts actually work and like can do a lot of facilitate a lot of discovery without publicly showing your, you know, imagine you could sign a, a commit reveal to a blockchain that only like some subset of parties you want to see can reveal. And then you can reveal your bid and then people coordinate that until we are at that point, which we're not uh, from a program. From not from a technical standpoint, but from like a programmatic standpoint. It's, it's just like the programming that right now sure. is pain in the ass. Like no one's going to do it. Like it's not like it's just like really not at the at stage that that's ready to do. Like like it's not theoretic. It's obviously theoretically and pra- proof of concept practically possible. It's just not yeah. in like, hey, you're going to put this in like rainbow wallet possible. Right. Um, uh, and I, I and obviously that you know five years more of engineering that might be good not be true but right now that's still going to happen i think that's why you want something where it's like people vote on this auction then they get a certain amount of time and then they have to reveal their preferences right like right now the problem is the preferences revelation process is like extremely asymmetric and like one side will reveal one thing in a way that like forces the other side to take longer to reveal instead of like shorten how fast they reply right and if you can make it something where they have to like kind of have a back and forth that will actually at least you know in a lot of cases i think reduce the complexity of these deals well one interesting case of dow governance quote unquote coming into play was uh in the last week we saw a huge drama play out in terra so terra for those who are not familiar it's a layer one blockchain it's uh, been around for a few years now it used to be a stable coin it it, it, it still issues a stable coin called ust and it's a little bit complex to explain all the moving parts, but basically one of the most popular protocols on Terra is a protocol called Anchor, Anchor, a DeFi protocol, uh, in which we are actually Dragonfly is an investor. And Anchor, essentially what they do is they offer very high yields to people who stake some of their assets, including stablecoins, into Anchor. And uh, Anchor, uh, because it offers very high yields, so you know on the order of about 20% yields, those yields in this environment are not really sustainable. It's very difficult to get 20% yield doing anything right now, given the way that yields have come down in in DeFi. So Anchor's reserves were draining over time. And if Anchor were to lose a lot of the um, supply that were locked in Anchor, it would have very negative effects for the overall Terra ecosystem, as well as for Anchor itself. And so uh, there was a proposal in Anchor governance and in Terra governance broadly to inject a bunch of capital to backstop and kind of, you know, help uh, strengthen the reserve to allow Anchor to be able to continue offering these high yields for a longer period of time. And so apparently what happened was uh, LFG, which I think is the something, something guard, they ingest, injected 450 million into Anchor uh, in order to protect the reserves. And we also saw very recently announced a $1 billion fundraise uh, to create a uh, billion dollars of BTC that is going to be backstopping the Terra ecosystem further. So a huge amount of capital that is going in to protect the Anchor ecosystem in a way that obviously, you know, the, I, I was reading through some of the uh, forum comments in the governance forum for Anchor. It was very interesting seeing this phenomenon of a, a lot of folks who obviously don't directly have access to that capital. It's kind of maybe even slightly unclear where the capital is coming from, but they're just like, yeah, yeah, we should shove a bunch of money back into Anchor to, to keep it all going. Curious what you guys think of this whole Terra Anchor saga and, and where you believe it might be going? I mean, 
Terra is a little bit between a rock and a hard place. Like people, clearly there is a large percentage of the you know, UST in Anchor that is exclusively there to get this yield. And if that yield goes down or disappears, that kind of unwinds. And obviously that greatly impacts the Luna price just by, by virtue of the fact how Terra is designed. I feel like this is, the, the 450 mil seems like maybe a, a stopgap, right? Like you kind of need that money to maybe make sure that this thing doesn't bleed out immediately. But it feels like maybe the rest of the money could have been better spent designing new sources of demand for UST, which was, I think, you know, part of the thesis of some of the products they've been developing so far. And I, I don't, this doesn't feel super sustainable to me. Like, I feel like a billion dollars could go a long way towards developing new dApps or partnerships or use cases that are going to generate, new, you know, new organic sources of demand for UST. So they don't have to keep, you know, sort of burning the cash, so to speak. It's an interesting point. I, I, I agree, Tom. I mean, it's, if you squint, it's like an extremely simple ecosystem, which is Luna makes UST and the demand, pretty much all of the demand for UST comes from you. You can earn 20% on it. There's a little bit of demand outside of that, right? But like it's, you can earn 20% on it. And that 20% comes from Luna. <laughs> and this works, you know, eventually it gets so big that there's sustainability issues. If it works forever and it's small, it's, you know, it's a perpetual motion machine and everyone high fives. I think long term, something has to change fundamentally in the economics of the system. You know, this can keep working for a while, right? Like, just put this in a spreadsheet, you know, if you're paying people 20%, you know, let's say on their UST, which you created from Luna anyway, like, this keeps working for a while, you know, but eventually becomes unsustainable. And I think one of the primary foundational pieces of the economics of the ecosystem will change. It's going to have to. It might be the yields go down. It might be you meant UST not with Luna. Maybe it's, you know something totally left field, who knows, but like, I expect something's going to have to give. Uh, you know, Tom, you raised this point of like, look, you could take that billion dollars and do a lot more things with it. You know, you could build more use cases, build more partnerships. And uh, to a certain extent, I, I kind of disagree in the sense that um, we have run out of ways to use money to buy adoption. Um, we're like so far down the utilization curve of money that you just think of all the captive capital right now in crypto, especially among the layer ones, we're just thinking about the current generation of like, you know, all the folks who are like Polygon and Avalanche and, and Terra and, uh, you know, Near Protocol and all of them have raised crap loads of money. And, um, it's very unclear what they're, how they can use it to do anything. Um, and that's ignoring even the previous generation, right? Like think of how much money Filecoin has, how much money Tezos Foundation has, how much money, uh, you know, the, these uh, EOS for that matter has or Tron has. All of these folks have huge balance sheets and they have absolutely nothing to spend it on. And so I think we're, we're in the situation now where the, the, the uses for capital to produce adoption or to produce partnerships even has incredibly, has become incredibly inefficient. And what you see now mostly is that there are tons of bidding wars, um, between all of these protocols and their balance sheets for partnerships, right? If you, if you're, if you're Tom Brady or you're Melania Trump and you want to launch an FT project, you just go to all these foundations. You say, Hey, I'm going to launch an FT project. Give me your best price. And, you know, it's like, okay, 5 million, 10 million, 15 million to, to launch a project on top of them. That's where these treasuries are mostly going. So I don't know that Terra had a lot of other ways. Well, Melania clearly didn't talk to the Solana Foundation based on all of the logistical fuck ups. And also then all of everyone working like Anatoly and Solana Twitter being like, we're not associated with this whatsoever. <laughs> 
That's true. That's true. That's true. I, I, I bring it up in, uh, in jest, but you know, most projects do look like that. I don't know. I think some of those products are just like fundamentally crap or like unneeded. Um, and so it's like, yeah, four, $4 billion is not going to save EOS. Like it's just impossible. Um, but I just feel like, you know, stable coins are like the killer app of, of crypto. I mean, there's like what 13 billion and like tether sitting on Tron, like, like what, what is that doing? Is it being used for gambling using for being used for payments? I, I like stable coins are fundamentally like the killer app of crypto so far. And so I'm not super convinced that they, they've tapped out, but point well taken. This is why I think the 450 makes sense because it takes a while to sort of build these things out and deploy. You can't just like, you know, uh, put this money to work overnight and expect dividends in the form of new applications. But it's like you need to do something. You can't just sort of like you know, keep holding on and, and hope that people are going to stick around. I mean, one thing I would add is that unlike some of the other stable coins that are sort of similar in structure like Celo, the Terra design never had an explicit reserve. And this is basically bolting on what you've seen in some of the other stable coins of like a, a basket of other crypto assets as a reserve. So it's not like it's unheard of. And the size is, given how large Luna is relative to Celo, I think actually they're still undercapitalized on a dollar per dollar bait redemption basis. Like if we compare it to other sort of undercapitalized coins. So, so it's not so crazy size wise. You know, I, I, I do agree that it's kind of like hard to buy. Like there's customer acquisition costs in crypto feels like zero, 10 or infinity, right? There's like, there's no in-between CAC. It's like, it's either it's really, it's either nothing people are using it for free uh, because they're earning fees or something, or it's like a little bit and you can get them, or it's just like you're paying infinite to keep them. So I think it is a little hard because it's not as kind of, discrete in a lot of other industries, I guess. Also, the, the Terra ecosystem is a little weird, right? There's like, there've been a bunch of new protocols, like Mars Protocol has like a three-month UST lockup. For the record, I don't really own any UST or, or use it. I, I, I've used it a few times, but like not seriously. And part of the problem I had with it was like the only application you could really, if you're not in Korea, with disclaimer, in Korea, there's tons of stuff you can do with it. But, like, there wasn't really that much, right? There's, like, Anchor, Astroport, Mars. Uh, and I, I do feel like until they have more protocols that are just, like, the base core blocks, they can't. it's really hard to just, like, pay for new users, right? For, like, Polygon or Avalanche, just everyone just redeployed Uniswap, Compound, Aave, right? Like, and that, that was enough to, like, but, like, Terra doesn't quite have that. Like, the only thing that's there is Anchor, right? So it, it I don't think they, they could spend their way out of this, in any scenario, unless they make the backstop, make people have confidence in it. Well, if Doe is listening, it, in the interest of uh, replicating the successful DeFi protocols from their chain, I might suggest he make a ribbon clone, which seems to be the thing that is missing from the, from the uh, <laughs> Terra ecosystem so far. So, you know, you got to have every Lego piece together. And don't get me wrong, Doe is also an incredible hustler and finding random teams building all this stuff. So I just think it's like, there's a cart before the horse thing. And to Hasib's point, I don't think throwing money at the, the, the horses is going to work. It's might as, you might as well load up, get as many carts as possible. I mean, ultimately it's buying them time. And it's, it's a real question of whether Terra can use that time profitably to change the calculus. Cause what, what may end up happening is that, you know, six, eight, nine months later down the road, we're in the exact same spot and it's time for another billion dollars of backstop. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Obviously we're, you know, a dragonfly, we're long. Uh, anchor. So we, we hope that things work out. 
but um, it's clearly not in a you know very promising position right now, given the given the state of the the yield situation. But speaking of yields, um, one of the big pieces of news this week was BlockFi. So BlockFi uh, entered into a settlement with the SEC. It agreed to pay a hundred million dollars in penalties and to pursue registration of its crypto lending product. So for those who are not following the saga, um, BlockFi, uh, it, it allows you to get yield on your crypto. It's a kind of centralized company that uh, has become increasingly popular in the last few years. And uh, the SEC, uh, well, actually, uh, many different state regulators, state securities regulators, started going after BlockFi in their states, basically saying that BlockFi was uh, offering securities, unregistered securities, and that's not cool. And so this culminated in the SEC uh, finally uh, extracting a massive penalty or relatively massive penalty for BlockFi, $100 million. And uh, uh, BlockFi agreed to stop offering their uh, yield products to any of their customers until they register. So this is um, interesting on a few dimensions. I mean, one is that, okay, $100 million is a big penalty, but it's also not a big penalty relative to the market cap of BlockFi, which is, you know, you know they, they sort of built a business by doing this and then, uh, we're able to get really huge and then essentially, you know, take a, I don't know, like a few percent tax on their business to go and fix it after the fact. But of course, it also reverberates across the industry in that one, it creates a path for other regulated institutions to start offering the same thing uh, in terms of crypto lending products. And it uh, ultimately maybe produces even a little bit of a moat for BlockFi, given that they are going to be the first to be registered, presumably with the SEC um, for the offering of this uh, crypto lending product. So curious, uh, Robert in particular, I'm, I'm uh, wondering what your reaction was to this news. Well, I, I think in some ways it's good because, you know, if you're a business that accepts money from retail customers and does whatever you want with that money to generate a return and then passes that return to customers, that's clearly a security, right? And, you know, I think that's been relatively obviously a security or a securities-related business for a really long time. They weren't just gone after for offering a security, but also being an investment company, as well as fraud. You know, it should be clear that, like, if you are a very traditional organization that is doing that, you will have to comply. It doesn't matter that it's a new digital asset. It doesn't matter that it's a new type of asset. If you're in the business of taking money, using your discretion and skill and excellent prowess to make a return and handing it to customers, that's old school Wall Street, right? And so I, I see this as no surprise. I imagine that there's a lot of folks in the regulatory space that are not surprised by this outcome either. You know, at Compound you know, Labs, we offer a product called Compound Treasury, which operates on the assumption that, you know, giving money to a business to generate an interest rate for you is a security. And so it's only offered to accredited investors, you know, as an exemption from registration. But knowing that businesses will be able to just register this with the SEC is extremely positive. Um, I think not just for businesses that look like BlockFi, but for other types of businesses that don't look like BlockFi. I assume next up are securities exchanges that are trading crypto, right? And eventually you'll see all of these businesses and things like them, not just lenders, but trading platforms, brokers, you know, all of these, you know, types of entities, you know, being registered businesses, you know, yeah, it's not, they're not trading equities or they're not supporting the equities financial markets, but they're doing crypto and the crypto financial markets. And I think long-term it's going to be really positive for 
uh, the space. In the short term, obviously, it's chaotic, but giving them an opportunity, you know, to become, you know, regulated and registered businesses is extremely positive long term. Makes sense. Spoken like a true elder statesman of lending. I, I, I agree. I think it seems like a good thing for the industry that we finally have some regulatory clarity, even if it only comes through enforcement. Some clarity is better than no clarity, even if uh, it'd be nice to have that clarity ex ante before people end up running afoul of the lines. I actually really liked um, Matt Levine's take on this, which was like, you know, normally if you want regulatory clarity, you can hire a bunch of lawyers and spend a lot of time. And maybe after several years, um, you finally get approval or yes, no, or, or a path forward for whatever the product is you're trying to build. Or you can do what BlockFi did, which is just build it and then take a small haircut after the fact, but having already built a great business. And it does seem like in crypto, that is often the best path forward, given that um, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of responsiveness or quickness to actually get um, clarity on all the products people are building. So was EOS the most successful regulatory clarity entity in history based on this? It's got to be, yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't really get a lot of clarity from EOS, right? Because like, if you, if you look at the history of the SEC going after token issuances as securities, it's so like EOS, slap on the wrist, like, you know, didn't have to register. Kin, slap on the wrist, didn't have to register. Telegram, nope, you can't do Telegram. Telegram token was like too security-like. Uh, you can't do the DeFi money market car lending thing. Or it was just 100% it was. fraud. <laughs> oh, was, that, was that just yeah. fraud? Okay. It right, was yeah. all fraud all day, all night. Yeah, it was all fraud. Oh, I see. Okay, never mind. Never mind on that one then. <laughs> but, uh, and then XRP is still up in the air, unclear where XRP is going to land. And of course, you know, Ethereum, whatever, statute of limitations, I suppose. DAO was a security according to the SEC. So it feels like we're, we've kind of got a big range and there's not a lot of clarity even from what the SEC has gone after. I mean, I think it's going to get more interesting if the NFT, SEC goes after NFT stuff or like see, some, someone goes start going after NFT stuff. I feel like these things are all things... You know, the BlockFi settlement to me just read like I read some tweets from lawyers from 2018 and then we zoomed forward and picked a number, you know, like like it wasn't like people weren't already saying a lot of this stuff. Right. It's just that right. the government decided to pick a random stopping time and a random number and then we got an answer. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. That's a fair, uh, fair critique. All right. So we're, we're winding down on time. But one thing I want to make sure that we get to is uh, there's been a, an amazing discovery in the world of DeFi. Um, so we were talking earlier about stablecoins with Terra. And it turns out the renowned stablecoin known as Ohm, uh, otherwise uh, called Olympus DAO, um, it turns out that it was recently discovered by some leading uh, scientists and researchers that Ohm bonds actually serve as a volatility reduction strategy. Tarun, do you want to cover this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I've shilled Ohm, Ohm as not being all like pure Ponzi in this, uh, in this show many times. I spent... I spent you know, my theory for whenever you should try to figure out if a crypto project is uh, a, just a pure Ponzi or whether they are, there's some some actual like sort of mathematical reason that it should work is if you see it last a really long time and then some there's a huge crash and somehow still is not dead uh, and you see that like a certain number of times, right? Because like something that's like a pure Ponzi fake algo stablecoin, you know, You'll see that you'll see the death spiral really fast, right? We've seen enough of these. It dies once. It dies once. ESD maybe had a little like fake second bump, but yeah, but you know, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's it's the bare it's not means, the suicide you know? roller coaster. It's like one instant, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. 
and Ohm had this interesting thing where it like somehow didn't die, even though like theoretically, right? Like everyone was like, oh, a lot of algo stable coins. They're just these like kind of overly simplistic controllers, you know, like somehow you, you can't really get them to work without putting huge backstops just to be speaking of, for instance, back backstops, like the Celo and Terra models effectively end up needing some backstop. And you hope your staking coin is a good enough backstop, but eventually you have to diversify and offer kind of different types of yield, different types of duration risk to people on the other side. And so Ohm, you know, I think I think it, it, it certainly fairly has gotten a lot of criticism because they created the greatest meme in crypto of 2021. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that probably was Ponzi-like, like the staking me- mechanism was really not really doing anything for the protocol. But this bond mechanism that they invented and now is the reason that it became like the third most forked contract you know, on EVM chains. I, and, and that the third most involves a lot of heuristics, like throwing out safe math and throwing out libraries, but whatever, like assume that like third most did with the heuristics I used for this. One of the reasons it's so stable is that this bond thing actually does work in some way. There's, there's some sort of meaning to like why having, having bonds as a way for a DAO to rebalance its treasury, like works really well. And like people have said this forever. Like Tom has probably said this since 2020 that like DAO should be like issuing bonds and like, you know, there was all these uh, versions of it, like UMA options and stuff like that. And none of them caught on, but the own bond is like, is, is this cohen of truth. And uh, yeah, you know, this paper kind of formalizes that and argues that, look, you can actually lower the volatility of the asset that way by adding more bonds. And as you add more bonds, you can make like the Dow's treasury management strategy stable. So it was more like, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, I talked to, I actually met the Ohm folks in Denver. I don't think they like invented this figure like real with that assumption that this is, it was just that they were like fly by the seat of their pants and they kept adding all these features and somehow the Frankenstein worked and like, you know, under the cover, you're going to be like, okay, there's actually like life underneath. It's not just, you know, the dead robot. Well, that's the magic of Darwinian evolution, right? There's no, there's no single hand controlling all this, but what rises to the top is the, uh, the adaptations that lead to survival. It's just like, you know, think about a year ago from right now. That was like peak algo stable. Con- that was when Mark Cuban got rugged on Titan. Do you, do you remember that? Like that was a year ago. That felt like, a that month. was like a year ago. <laughs> Time has lost meaning in this industry. But but my, my point is, like, there were so many things that died and Ohm did not. So, like, there's some cone of truth. And that was hopefully what we tried to illustrate. So the last thing is that I think uh, a few of us were in ETH Denver over the weekend, which was an uh, absolutely incredible event. Uh, huge numbers of people there. I heard that there were 15,000 people at ETH Denver. And from what I heard, the last ETH Denver, which I think is 2020, there were 1,500 people. And there were thousands the of people on the wait list. Denver, I remember you could get a free ticket for it because they like had extra capacity. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, was, it was pretty it was nuts. Totally crazy. Just like people spilling out under the street and they're like, you know, lines like two blocks long to get into the venue. All the hotels are booked out and everything. Um, so it's great to see, obviously, people excited and great to see a lot of energy around um, Ethereum and, and crypto. I, I will say, though, that like I, I was a judge for the hackathon. And I don't, I don't I feel like the projects were not substantially better or they're not like 10 times more projects. So I feel like a lot of people were in town just to party or, you know, talk about their project or whatever. But who knows? Maybe maybe it's just my my bias. So are you saying that it was the modern equivalent of what Bitcoin Miami was, but for Ethereum? 
That sounds that sounds right to me. Yeah, except for the weaker form of COVID spreading. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. There, there was there's some poll I just saw on Twitter that was like, "Did you get COVID at East Denver?" And they, I think it was like sixty percent yes, forty percent no. Wait, sixty so. percent yes? Yeah, it had like it had like hundred fifty responses. So. Holy crap! Okay. Well, the the other thing was that uh, so when I was in line. Um, at East Denver, because you have to take a COVID test to actually get in. Clearly, it wasn't very effective because obviously there's a lot of COVID spreading there. When I was in line at East Denver, everybody in my group who was in line with me, they had all joined crypto in the last year. And none of them were devs. So I, I think it is, it does vindicate a little bit that this, you know, this is the kind of Bitcoin Miami for Ethereum in that, um, there were, you know, almost everybody there was into NFTs and that was their, that was their relationship with Ethereum and what was happening in this community, um, which just kind of shows how big the tent has gotten. And, um, you know, crypto, I don't know. I feel like uh, more and more, I feel like an old man in the space, uh, given that I'm like, wait, you guys don't know about DeFi? You guys don't know about... Look, you're getting old. Robert's getting young. I know, I know. We're going, we're going opposite cube. ways. We're passing each other <laughs> in age. Terrible. Jeez. Yeah, in a year, I'm going to ask you to invest in my new idea. <laughs> wait time is a circle is that what you're saying time is a circle <laughs> yeah time's a circle i'm gonna go back to the outset yeah 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 robert i would be like look we, we gotta he's so young we have to invest in him yeah that's gonna be our that's gonna be our memo you know how right now there's high schoolers who are doing DeFi. eventually there's gonna be like <laughs> middle schoolers you know they're already middle schoolers buying nfts man that's the thing that's uh, i mean like the, 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 half that conference was kids i mean the i've never i mean maybe I, this is a funnier observations like i've never been so many places that checked your id like and like we're very like it was very clear that they were like the rari kids were not they weren't even at the bottom of the they were too old they were too old for yeah they're yeah, kind yeah, of the exactly. median they're the median now <laughs> that's nuts that's nuts anyway all right guys well this was um an interesting couple weeks hopefully um we'll be back soon with another episode of the chopping block can, can i ask you a favor yeah. Can we get Laura as our guest next week? And like, let's, oh, yeah, yeah. let's, we get, let's do her. the deep dive. We should, we should have a deep dive with the. I, I totally agree. Okay. Next time, yeah. homework assignment. All of you out there and all of us on the show, we got to read the Cryptopians. And then next time, we're going to have Laura on for a, a history lesson. And pitch us which shitty DAO to put our savings into. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, sh- the shitty DAO. I think that the, the shitty DAO thing has got to be a sticking, sticking point. Yeah, we, we need to do that. For real. We got our marching orders. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody.